Eye on Arabia, reporting, analysis, and the occasional surprise from author and Middle East specialist Joseph Browdy. Americans need to learn more about Islamic history, but like any historical tradition from a faraway time and place, it can be a little inaccessible. As a student of the subject, I've given some thought to how to bridge this gap. The saga of Islamic civilization is in many ways a universal story of good versus evil, the cycle of life, and the foibles of human nature. And so it isn't too big a stretch to connect that saga to some of the great stories and movies Americans know and love. That's what I tried to do in this two-episode documentary about two pivotal slave rebellions of Islamic history, co-produced with Public Radio International's Afropop Worldwide. Co-narrating the documentary along with me is Georges Collinet, the great broadcaster from Cameroon, whose voice is ubiquitous on the airwaves of Africa. We kick off the show with a familiar opening crawl. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, there came a time of revolution, when rebels united to challenge a tyrannical empire. But not the empire you're thinking of. Hello, I'm Georges Collinet with Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International. The rebels and empires we have for you today are not so far away or long ago, and probably not so familiar. For instance, did you know that in 869 in the Middle East, African slaves seized control of southern Iraq and created a slave republic that lasted 14 years? Or that less than 50 years after that, Berbers in North Africa overthrew an Arab regime and ushered in a Shiite Muslim empire that lasted over 100 years? These events helped crystallize the Sunni-Shiite divide within Islam and had cataclysmic effects on political and religious history throughout the region. Today, on this Hip Deep edition, we bring you an imaginative foray into overlooked and sometimes controversial history. A tale of two rebellions. The moon with the rebel base will be in range in 30 minutes. This will be a day long remembered. It's 868 and the Abbasid Muslim Empire has been ruling from its capital Baghdad for over a century. I'm your co-host Joseph Browdy and this is a time in Islamic history when the Middle East is in flux and often Africans call the shots. Episode 1, The Zanj Rebellion. The Abbasid Empire is the largest in the world. It stretches from North Africa's Atlantic coast in the west to the borders of China in the east. The capital Baghdad is a sprawling metropolis of a million people, a center of innovation in science, philosophy, literature, and music. power, the Abbasid Empire in the 9th century is now passing its prime, and it has an Achilles heel. Manpower. The expansion has been arduous and exhausting. The Abbasids cannot maintain their empire without help, so Turks are brought in as soldiers, and many Africans are imported to the Middle East as slaves. Because most of these Africans come from East Africa, often via the island of Zanzibar, they become known as the Zanj. The Zanj were brought into southern Iraq in the area north of Basra, and they were put to work clearing topsoil of salt. That's Richard Bullitt, a history professor at Columbia University. He describes a rock-hard layer of sun-baked salt several feet thick covering the land. Southern Iraqi farmers brought in thousands of slaves to pick off and carry away tons of salt before they could cultivate the land. 
It's just that you paid good money for that African guinea man and you got an investment. American slaves had nothing on the Zange as they hacked away at salt marshes in the broiling Iraqi sun. Small wonder, thoughts turned to rebellion. In the history of slavery around the world, one of the commonplace fears and occasional happenings is that you'll have a large enough number of slaves that generates a sufficiently potent force and leadership to stage a revolt. The revolts will take place in two ways. One of them is for slaves to flee the land and to go into a remote area. Some of the um, slave republics that you have in South America really do last for periods of years, sometimes extended periods of years, because it's not worth anyone's trouble and risk to try and bring them down, and they successfully go off and live on their own. Then you have another type, of which, say, the classic example would be the revolution in Haiti, where the slaves seize dominion, uh, kill the owners who are dominating the land, and set up their own republic in situ, in, in the spot where, where they have been working. Like other slave revolts that became slave republics, the Zanj need only the spark of a revolutionary message from a charismatic leader. You've come to fight as free men. And free men you are. What will you do without freedom? Will you fight? It's the clarion call that rouses the oppressed in every time and place. But the language and symbols take different forms in different settings. And in the medieval Muslim world, the language is religion. A mysterious man, not an African himself, comes to the Zanj and promises them a better life in this world and the next. He says God has commanded him to lead the Zanj into war. And he who keeps the keys to heaven rules the world. His name is Ali bin Muhammad, and he claims lineage to the Prophet Muhammad through the line of the Prophet's son-in-law, Ali. A cloud cast a shadow upon me, he says. Thunder crackled and lightning flashed. A thunderclap resounded in my ears, and a voice addressed me, saying, Head for Basra. The voice from the thunder commanded me to go to Basra. Ali bin Muhammad the archetype of a 9th century Shiite revolutionary. Shiite is an easy term to define. Muslims who believe that the leadership of the community at any given point in time rightly belongs to a member of the family of Muhammad through his son-in-law Ali. These people are Shiites. For the Abbasids ruling from Baghdad, the Shiites are rebels to be suppressed. You are part of a rebel alliance and a traitor. Take it away! Shiites are rebelling in many parts of the Abbasid Empire at this time, but the Shiite-led army of the Zanj, now that is something new. Ali bin Mohammed promises his African troops that he will never turn them over to their masters. And while the leader says he himself does not crave earthly goods or glory, he promises to improve the lives of the Zanj. They should have money and homes to possess for themselves, he says, and even slaves of their own. Thousands of Zanj troops cross the salt flats into Basra and ferociously attack their masters. They kill 500 in an afternoon. They loot the spoils of battle and press north beyond the marshes. Over the next 14 years, the Zanj win battle after battle and build up their own slave republic that includes at its height six towns reaching within 70 miles of Baghdad. Who's the heavyweight champion of the world? The Zanj army grows ever more self-assured. One more time, who's the champion of the world? Arab historians remember the infamous Day of the Barges when the Zanj leader seizes 14 ships. The boat's owners try to bind their boats one to another so as to form a kind of island. But the Zanj send reinforcements to ensure a mighty victory. They overwhelm the boats, kill the men on board, 
capture slaves, plunder treasure the extent of which cannot be estimated, and fight on three days straight, occupying a city and killing many of its inhabitants before burning it to the ground. Now keep in mind, we know about these events only through the writings of Arab historians. The Zanch never got to tell their side of the story. Sad but true, George. But here's what happens next. The Zanj rule from their capital city, Al-Muhtara, which means the Chosen One. The Abbasid army is busy putting out fires all over the empire, but now, Wipe them out. the Zanj become enemy number one. All of them. The ruling caliph in Baghdad orders his army chief to concentrate his firepower on the African rebels. Do what must be done. And it's only a matter of time. Do not hesitate. The army besieges the Zanj capital. In the final assault, the Zanj are routed and forever dispersed, and the leader Ali bin Muhammad is killed, his head skewered on a pole and paraded through Baghdad. There's been a rebellion, sir. Don't worry, the situation is under control. I'm sorry, sir. It's time for you to leave. Well, like I say, history is always written by the victors. For Africans like me, well, it's natural to feel solidarity with the Zanj, but for the medieval Arab historians, the slave-run republic is remembered only as the enemy. The Zanj leader Ali bin Muhammad bitterly cursed and dubbed the abominable one. But as surely as Arab Islamic culture could be bitter about its defeats, it could also be high-minded after victory. I asked an Arab historian in Bahrain how Islamic literary culture goes on to remember the Zanj, and here's what he said. He says that Abbasid scholars recall Abdullah bin Ja'far, a friend of the Prophet Muhammad's, who had spent time in Ethiopia. This friend is even said to have performed a Zanj dance for the Prophet, skipping and gyrating to the rhythm, and reportedly the Prophet himself approved of its charm. This historian even remembers a fragment of a song in an African language that references the Kenyan city of Mombasa. This Bahraini scholar doesn't even understand the words he's singing, though he does sing the Zanj song with a smile on his face. Okay, okay. But Columbia professor Richard Bullitt goes even further in questioning Arab memories of the Zanj in war and peace. In medieval Arabic historical writing, it is extremely difficult to find a narrative that grants any sort of historical agency to groups except under the leadership of a religious figure who can be classified according to Sunni or Shia or some other straightforward fashion. In other words, Arab historians fail to see the Zanj as oppressed people fighting for their rights. In their histories, the Zanj are merely tools of a Shiite insurgent. But what is sure is that the Zanj sent shockwaves throughout the Muslim world, even if the details of their story will always be partly shrouded in mystery. Coming up in episode 2, we fast forward a few decades and see how a new rebel group turns mystery into mastery. You can find more information and links to further sources on the history in this program on our website, afropop.org. I'm Georges Collinet with Afropop Worldwide's Hip Deep Edition, a tale of two rebellions. Major support for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities, 
the National Endowment for the Arts, Merck, where patients come first. Before we continue, a little musical interlude. Hey, Joseph, what have you got for us? We have the great Iraqi oud player Munir Bashir to guide us in our journey west. This is his song From Baghdad to Granada, and it's a kind of a romantic vision of a vast Arab empire reaching from Iraq across North Africa and into Muslim Spain. If you're just joining us, we're recounting the tale of two Islamic rebellions in which Africans played a key role. It's the late 9th century, and the Abbasid Empire rules from Baghdad. You're a Shiite insurgent and you want to rule the Arab East. The Zanjar defeated, and imperial spies are everywhere. Time to go underground and spin a new web, a transcontinental, multi-generational conspiracy so vast it could topple an empire. I'm Joseph Browdy, your co-host for Afropop Worldwide's Hip Deep, and welcome to Episode 2, The Fatimid Revolution. You asked what would be worth killing for. Witness the greatest cover-up in human history. This is the secret. The year is 882 and the Abbasid Empire is seething with civil unrest. Bedouin tribes out of power, subjugated peoples, slaves with weapons. All it takes is a spark to ignite a revolution. And the spark in this case is a riveting story. The story of a royal bloodline called the Fatimids, the living descendants of the Prophet Muhammad. They are the guardians of the royal bloodline keepers of the proof of our true past. They are the protectors of the living descendants. The Fatimids claim 
to be a branch of the family of the Prophet Muhammad. And the other members of the family of Muhammad claim that they're imposters. They were people close to the family of Muhammad at that time, but they were actually of a different lineage. They have no descent from Muhammad. And so that's a big debate. And in order to defend themselves, um, the Fatimids elaborate the myth of their own origins that various members of their family went by different names. Therefore, there's a great confusion as to who actually was a descendant and who was not. But they also have this penchant for secrecy because they explain, well, we have always been in danger. We've always had to live in hiding. We've always had to use nom de guerre because our enemies would destroy us. But let's assume for the moment that the Fatimid story is true, that they really are the Prophet's descendants. There are a lot of believers in every faith who yearn to have a genuine, divinely inspired person in their midst. Holy Ghost power! Hallelujah! They're drawn to saints. They're drawn to prophets. Holy Ghost power! They're drawn to uh, manifestations of God and so forth. And the Fatimids offered that. The devil thought he had the keys. The devil thought he had the keys. And come out of hell with the keys to the kingdom. We got the keys to the kingdom. We got the, we got the keys to the kingdom. The keys to the kingdom. A powerful image for the angry, disaffected subjects of an empire. Fatimid historians claim that by the 9th century, a living descendant of the Prophet Muhammad, through the Fatimid line, has set up an underground revolutionary headquarters. He is the Mahdi, the rightly guided one, and he can work miracles. He's only waiting for the right moment to reveal himself and bring glory and perfection to the world. From his secret hideaway somewhere in Jordan, the Mahdi has been sending his own personal emissaries to every corner of the Abbasid Empire to spread the good word. Amen. Pray to God. And prepare a legion of followers for his triumphant return. An emissary of the Mahdi will go anywhere, to any family or tribe that will give him a place to stay and a flock to preach to. Would you mind if I stayed around here for a day or two just to rest a while and uh, see whatever the Lord has for me next? Would you mind that? You, you sound like a priest. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I, I've been a minister of the Lord since I was 12 years old, back when God called me. Yeah, I, I am. I do have a pumpkin in the back that my grandchildren be with me a lot. They please me sometimes. Could you use that? Oh, come on. I sleep in any pumpkin, anytime, anywhere. I appreciate it. Yes, yes sir. That's like it, a mansion on a hill. Yes, you are. It's a mansion yes. on a hill. And when he gets to preaching, his message is that the followers of the Mahdi should bond together and get ready to fight. I'm preaching like I'm going to war this morning. To fight and kill and overthrow the Abbasid Empire. I got my war clothes. I'm preaching like I'm going to war this morning. So that Muhammad's descendants, the Fatimids, may once again rule. Now if God be for us, who can be against us? Emissaries of the underground Fatimid leader travel to the most volatile regions of the empire, where the authority of Baghdad is weak. One preacher settles among the Aramaic-speaking peasants by the ruin of ancient Babylon. Another journeys to the deserts of eastern Arabia, where camel-breeding warrior tribes stand ready to fight for a holy cause. For 25 years, the Fatimid network spins its web far and wide into Yemen, Iran, and India to the east, and a new frontier, North Africa to the west. Now, any time a Fatimid preacher builds a critical mass of followers, it's called a jazeera, an island for God in a hostile land. Some of these Fatimid islands, it is claimed, have a communal egalitarian ethos where fruit and grain grow alongside a culture of sharing and the people's commitment to the Fatimid cause. It's a compelling vision. Pulling weeds and picking stones, man is made of dreams and bones. Feels the need to grow my own, cause the time is close at hand. 
Grain for grain, sun and rain, find my way in nature's chain. Tune my body and my brain to the music of the land. And while these islands flourish, all the people give a fifth of their earnings to the mysterious Mahdi, who gets the money delivered to his hideout through a secret courier service. Plant your rows straight and long, temper them with prayer and song. Mother Earth will make you strong if you give her love and care. In medieval Islamic history, we have many, many, many sources that tell wonderful stories. But they're stories that historians today are very unsatisfied with. Maybe so, but a story well told can inspire a massive movement. Then, as now. Inch by inch, row by row, gonna make this garden grow. All it takes is a rake and a hoe and a piece of fertile ground. Inch by inch, row by row, someone bless these seeds I sow. Someone warm them from below till the rain comes tumbling down. Till the rain comes tumbling down Inch by inch, row by row In his Afropop debut, the late John Danver. With Fatimid communities flourishing, each local preacher now awaits the order from the mysterious leader to take up arms against the empire. Instructions might arrive by carrier pigeon any day. That's right, long-distance letters are reportedly carried between Fatimid Islands to the underground base in Jordan on the beaks of Fatimid homing pigeons. You're on a caravan, and you bring along in your caravan a cage full of pigeons from the place where you start out. And when you have a message, you release a pigeon with a message, and it goes back to the starting point. But which Fatimid community will finally spearhead the revolution, the Lord only knows. Preachers in Syria, Yemen, Iran, and the Arabian Gulf will all be surprised to learn that when decisive war finally breaks out, the army isn't Arab or Iranian or Indian, but African. Once again, the engines of radical change in Islamic history are an African people, in this case a group of Berber clans between modern-day Algeria and Tunisia who are known as the Kutama. If Fatimid history is to be believed, an Arab emissary of the underground Fatimid Mahdi journeys all the way west to Berberland in North Africa from Yemen and preaches to the disaffected Kutama. The Kutama Berbers don't like the pro-Abbasid Arab rulers in Tunisia any more than the preacher does. And they detest the other Berber families that have allied with the empire. So the Kutama reportedly embrace the Fatimid preacher and his ideological message. They accept him as their ruler, guide and military commander. Do you understand anything they're saying? I could be mistaken, they're using a very primitive dialect, but I do believe they think I am some sort of god. So what we have with the Mahdi wandering off into North Africa and finding a, a group of people who will accept him as a divine leader is a recurrent phenomenon in the narrative of early North African history by Arabic writers. Tell them if they don't do as you wish, you'll become angry and use your magic. But all these writers are writing sometimes two to three hundred years or more after the events. It makes the stories very, very hard to believe. And in fact, they're rather reminiscent of the stories that you have at a certain point in European exploration, where somebody goes off to Central America or South America or somewhere else and is treated as a god because he's a white man. What language is he speaking in? This is a completely Berber-speaking area. And this is a man who's had, so far as we know, no prior exposure to Berber. Terry, which was to start? You waited, soldier. 
And I think that the the West, the Maghreb, North Africa, in the imaginary of the medieval Muslims, was sort of like the New World in the minds of Europeans of the late 1400s and 1500s. It was full of natives that they didn't know anything about, and they believed stories about them. That were stories in which the foreign interloper always ends up as the king and the local people end up as the subjects as if they'd just been waiting for some Arab or Persian to come along and take the role of being a prophet or a leader. Wonderful. We are now a part of the tribe. This is a wish fulfillment kind of frontier story that um, that makes a good narrative but it doesn't make good history. Yet Fatimid history marches on and indisputably to a Berber beat. I'm Georges Collinet. You're listening to A Tale of Two Rebellions, a special hip-deep edition of Afropop Worldwide on PRI, Public Radio International, with author Joseph Browdy and historian Richard Bullitt. Time for a Fatimid Shiite military adventure in Berber, North Africa. It's 893, and imperial Arab lords who rule in North Africa with their Berber lackeys have heard the news. This is CNN. There's a mysterious Fatimid preacher in their midst, a Shiite rebel, himself from the Arab East. The empire wants him dead, along with his radical ideas. But as we have learned, the Fatimid preacher has his own Berber allies, the Kutama coalition, and they're ready for a rumble. Uh, 
the Fatimid rebellion draws first blood. Kutama Berber muster 700 infantry and 2,000 cavalry against their imperial adversaries. They're fast, they're battle ready, they know their own terrain, and in a four-day attack, they knock out the enemy's units before the empire can even form a line. The Kutama draw a rich haul of booty. Horses, weapons, military equipment, even the banners and drums of imperial troops. It would seem obvious to the medieval mind that the cause of Shi'ism, in this case a Fatimid-Berber alliance, is favored by God. They did it! They say nothing succeeds like success, and in the medieval Muslim world, nothing attracts followers to a holy cause faster than victory on the battlefield. More Kutama Berber joined the Fatimid coalition, the Ishjana clan, the Lataya, and the Jimala. If you build it. The Malusa, the Danhaja, the Urisa. If you build it. The numbers grow, and one victory follows the next. The Berber and their preacher have begun to build a North African Fatimid state. If you build it, he will come. Now there's a Fatimid prophecy out there saying if one of the Mahdi's preachers builds a sovereign state, he will come. The Mahdi will emerge from his secret hiding place in the east and come to you, wherever you are, and claim his rightful throne. For the preacher who commands the Berber, it seems that joyous time is close at hand. Imagine the passion of this preacher's faith. Don His faith in the holiness of a powerful but mysterious man he has never even met. I am honored and grateful. But for whom he fights. I pledge my ever-ending loyalty. Day after day, year after year. And his loyalty makes a big difference. By comparison, the preacher's enemies, the vassals of the Abbasid dynasty, have no such loyalty to their boss in Baghdad. Their soldiers fight for cash. But it occurred to me, the soldiers are paid to fight. The rebels aren't. What does that tell you? They can win. The soldier's commander, the local prince, is self-interested, self-absorbed, detached from the Abbasid family, and weak. Unless a man who doesn't spend time with his family can never be a real man. Maybe North Africa will become more than just a Fatimid island. Here we are, protected, free to make our profits without the goddamn Justice Department and the FBI. Maybe it will develop into more than a mere Fatimid state. What we'll do together in the next few months, make history. Maybe this preacher and his Berber allies will be the founding soldiers of a Fatimid empire. History. It's never been done before. Not even your father would dream that such a thing could be possible. And maybe all the other Fatimid communities would soon be taking orders from North Africa. Michael, we're bigger than U.S. Steel. And what about all those other Fatimid islands? Are other preachers making progress, building fighting forces in Arabia, Syria, Iran? Every island has its story. But all those stories end in a Fatimid defeat. A rebellion in Iran flames out. A fighting preacher in Syria tries to attack Damascus, but he ends up dead on a skewer. In Iraq, a Fatimid preacher loses faith in his underground Mahdi. Who is this mysterious man anyway? Nobody's ever met him. Is he really a descendant of the Prophet Muhammad? The preacher wonders. Does he even exist? Maybe he's a fraud. He starts doubting his faith and can't stand the uncertainty. The only thought that will cheer him up is the prospect of meeting the hidden leader face to face. So he goes off, leaving his little island behind, on a journey to where the pigeons fly. He tracks down the Mahdi's underground hideout in Jordan and bangs on the door. He demands to see the all-powerful man he says he wants to see him now. Not so fast! Not so fast! The response he gets from the Mahdi is disappointing. I'll have to give the matter a little thought. Go away and come back tomorrow. Tomorrow? 
you've had plenty of time already. Do not arouse the wrath of the great and powerful Oz. I said come back tomorrow. The Mahdi doesn't even show his face. He hides behind a set of drapes. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. The great and Oz has spoken. Who are you? Oh, I, I, I am the great and powerful wizard of Oz. You are? Uh, I yes. don't believe you. No, I'm afraid it's true. There's no other wizard except me. You humbug! Yeah. Yes, it's exactly so. I'm a humbug. Oh, you're a very bad man. Oh, no, my dear. I, I'm a very good man. I'm just a very bad wizard. The Iraqi preacher has his answer. Devastated, he goes back to his flocks and says the Mahdi is a fraud. His island keeps on fighting, but no longer for a fraudulent wizard. They secede from the Fatimid franchise. Soon enough, another Fatimid island follows suit, secedes near the Arabian Gulf, and before long, there is only one island left. Only the Berber and their Arab preacher still believe. And the man behind the curtain is starting to feel a little unsafe in his underground hideout in Jordan. For the so-called Mahdi in the Arab East, it's about time to get out of Dodge and make his way to Berberland. It's 106 miles to Chicago. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes. It's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it. Now, Joseph, isn't this Arab history you've been smoking starting to sound a little fanciful? Well, if you don't buy the story, you have to start imagining other reasons why the Kutama Berber would be motivated to fight other than an inspiring Fatimid preacher. So let us suppose, just hypothetically, that the Kutama Berbers of northwestern Tunisia hated the Berbers living and supporting the main government in Tunisia, and they were willing to fight against them. And they do fight against them and win. And now they become the dominant Berbers in Tunisia. If you didn't know the story of the emissary and the secrets he told and the, the story that these Berbers were going to do this in the name of a leader whom they had never even seen and who was in fact living in Jordan, if you didn't know that story, you would say, well, this must have something to do with the political, economic, and social ethnic relations within Tunisia. But what we have is the story, and the story serves the interest of the elite leadership of the Fatimid movement. That's a historian's critique of the Fatimid myth. But for many people, just because a myth isn't factual doesn't make it a lie. For those who believe, even the most improbable godly myth can survive a historian's critical gaze. Just ask the ghost of Joseph Campbell. God is a metaphor for a mystery that absolutely transcends all human categories of thought. I mean, it's as simple as that. So it depends on how much you want to think about it. Whether it's doing you any good. Whether it is putting you in touch with the mystery that's the ground of your own being. If it isn't, well, it's a lie. So half of the people in the world are religious people who think that their metaphors are facts. Those are what we call theists. The other half are people who know that the uh, metaphors are not facts. And so they're lies. Those are the atheists. Hmm, Joseph, my friend, it's clear you share Professor Campbell's soft spot for people who believe in the power of myth. So tell us, how does the Fatimi tale turn out? When the moon is in Well, the Mahdi makes his journey west to Berberland, through Syria, Palestine, Egypt, and into North Africa. Imperial soldiers chase him across the empire, but the Mahdi has a network of moles in the government who give him advance warning, so at every turn he manages to evade the empire's agents. In the year 902, he arrives in Berberland triumphant. A meteor shower lights up the North African sky like a fireworks display.
Thanks to his loyal supporter, the preacher and an obedient Berber army, the Fatimids conquered the provincial capital of Kairawan in Tunisia. And the Mahdi at last ascends the throne. Kutama Berber reportedly swarm into the city like a plague of locusts and loot everything in sight. Victory is marked by the joyous, tearful moment, 25 years in the making, when the loyal preacher and his Kutama minions finally meet the Mahdi. They spread out a carpet for him before the tent, and everyone surrounds him to hear him speak. They weep, they cheer, they praise God for having let them see the Mahdi with their own eyes. The Mahdi, in turn, praises them. This is positively the finest exhibition ever to be shown. Well, uh, well, uh, More or less. And then, to everyone's surprise, he declares that he won't be sticking around North Africa for very long. I, your wizard, am about to embark upon a hazardous and technically unexplainable journey into the outer stratosphere. He appoints his Berber supporters to be the official Fatimid governors of Tunisia and its North African provinces. And I hereby decree that until what time, if any, that I return, the scarecrow, by virtue of his highly superior brains, shall rule in my stead, assisted by the tin man, by virtue of his magnificent heart, and the lion, by virtue of his courage. Obey them as you would me. Thank you. Then he marches back east with enough Berber troops to conquer Egypt, whence he came, and founds the city of Cairo. Cairo, and not Tunisia, becomes the new Arab capital of the Fatimid Empire, where the leader sticks around to serve as ruling caliph. And so when the Fatimid movement goes off to Cairo, it takes the story with them and abandons Tunisia. We don't hear much of anything about Tunisia after that because they don't care. They're only interested in their story. This marks an end to the Age of Miracles in the Fatimid story and the beginning of a new dynasty's real-life political record. The pious preacher in North Africa who made victory possible does not even survive this transition. There's only one rule, expediency. He's arrested by the Mahdi he had followed blindly all these years, accused of treachery along with his brother. What have I ever done to make you treat me so disrespectfully? and then executed by the very regime he had given his whole life to build. And in a stunning twist, the Mahdi invites his former enemy, the ex-spymaster of the fallen regime, to serve as his own new Fatimid spy chief. What the hell do you think spies are? Moral philosophers measuring everything they do against the word of God or Karl Marx? They're not. They're just a bunch of seedy, squalid bastards like me. Little men, drunkards, queers, henpecked husbands, civil servants playing cowboys and Indians to brighten their rotten little lives. Yesterday I would have killed Munt because I thought him evil and an enemy, but not today. Today he's evil and my friend. Islamic Cold War that lasts about a hundred years between what's left of the Abbasid Caliphate in Baghdad and a new Fatimid anti-Caliphate in Cairo. It's a clash of Islamic ideologies and interests that forever transforms the Muslim world and paves the way for the divide we know today between Sunnis on the one hand and Shiites on the other. And the Kutama Berber of North Africa were the foot soldiers of revolution, an engine of historic change, who have had an enduring impact on Muslim affairs to this day. The Fatimid Empire was eventually defeated, though its ideology and reportedly its bloodline 
live on today in what is known as the Ismaili sect. Their dynastic leader, the Aga Khan, claims to be a direct descendant of the Prophet Muhammad. He traveled the world in the 20th century and was briefly married to Hollywood movie star Rita Hayworth and engaged to actress Jean Tierney. His son leads the Ismailis now, a generous man active in world affairs who keeps an ever watchful eye on the interests of his community. Man, Joseph, that's one hell of a tale. If you want to know more about the Zanj, the Fatimids, or Ismailis, the Abbasid, and the Berber, visit our website, afropop.org. Funding for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art. Adam Lewis's Loving Exactly What Is Foundation and PRI, Public Radio International affiliate stations around the U.S. And thank you for supporting your public radio station. Major corporate support for Afropop Worldwide comes from the pharmaceutical company Merck, working through programs and partnerships to combat disease in more than 140 countries around the world. Merck, where patients come first. More information at Merck.com. Additional support for Afropop Worldwide comes from Link TV, connecting Americans to the world through international news, films, world music videos, and more. Available through the Dish Network and Direct TV. More information on linktv.org. And now, before we leave, some music for you. There is no perfect music for a story that spans two continents and so many different cultures. Hey, Joseph, what do you suggest? Well, since our story ends in Cairo, I think the way to go out is with the greatest Egyptian singer of all time, Um Kalthum.
And that concludes our Hip Deep Adventure, a tale of two rebellions. My heartfelt thanks to author Joseph Browdy, who conceived, wrote, and co-produced this program along with Banning Air. Thanks also to Professor Richard Bullet for his help and insights. We heard clips from a number of films, including Star Wars, The Godfather, Braveheart, The Da Vinci Code, The Apostle, The Wizard of Oz, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, and The Blues Brothers. My Afropop partner is Sean Barlow. Sean produces our program for World Music Productions. Join us next time for a brief history of funk. That's history with slamming beats, not bloody battles, all right? Our chief audio engineer is Michael Jones. Additional engineering by Rob Berman. Banning Air edits our website, afropop.org. Our operations manager is Misha Turner. And I'm Georges Collinet. <laughs> Public Radio International.